Amen. It's good to be with you today. Uh, we are going to continue our study here through the I Am Sayings of Jesus. We're in John 11 today, and uh, we're considering one of the great promises of all Scripture. I'm going to do a slight pastor's audible today and read just a little bit more than what uh, I had intended. So if you do have a Bible, it'll be helpful again today to lay it out open in front of you so we can look at things as we go along. Uh, in the context of chapter 11, the whole chapter, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but, it, but you really have to understand the whole chapter to understand this saying. And so we'll be hitting uh, parts of the, of the chapter all the way through. And as it opens, uh, we find that Lazarus of Bethany is sick. And uh, they've called Jesus to come there, but he intentionally waits and goes later. And then he tells his disciples, we're going to go now. And they, to Judea, you were just threatened there. Why would we go back there? Jesus says it's time to go. And so uh, as we pick up the story in verse 12, uh, we get the context, a little bit more of the context uh, for today's I Am Saying. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Starting actually in verse 11. After these, saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant uh, taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Amen. Heavenly Father, we take up this, your word. We pray you would speak to our hearts, help us to hear your voice, and to respond uh, in faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you know anything about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some ways in which they're similar, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, uh, and in particular, John is very, very different from the other Gospels in the way that the story of Christ's ministry is presented. One of the things that's unique about all four Gospels, including John, is there's one miracle that they all record, and, and only one miracle, and that is the feeding of the 5,000, as we looked at it in John chapter 6 just before Jesus declared himself, I am the bread of life. This is Jesus' only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Think about that. Why would that be so significant that that miracle needs to be in all four 
Gospels. Okay, think about that. But today in chapter 11, we see the exact opposite, and that is the death and resurrection of Lazarus is something we only have in John's Gospel. Uh, it's never presented anywhere else. And so keep that in mind. John has drawn our attention to this in, in uh, his 11th chapter, and this crucial teaching about the work, the person, the ministry of Jesus. We'll look again as we've been doing at the setting briefly, and then the sense of the saying really flows out of the, out of the whole chapter. So we're going to just kind of walk right through the key points of the chapter together, and then we'll look at some of the significance of it at the very end. The setting, just to remind you of a couple of things, uh, uh, Tag alluded to this earlier, the, the, the Jewish setting for today's saying comes from the idea of the resurrection. The resurrection of the body is as old as uh, Scripture itself. Some of the earliest stories we have, uh, you know, Abraham, the father of the faith, he is tested. We, we were talking about and singing about uh, Isaac going up uh, to the mountain to offer himself as a, as a sacrifice. And we see our first, one of the early glimpses of what the gospel looks like, that the father and his only beloved son, uh, he leads him to the mountain to be slaughtered. He carries the wood on his back. Sound familiar? And as he gets to the top, the father is willing to sacrifice his son on the altar to obey God the Father. And then he has stopped. His faith has been tested. He has passed the test. And Hebrews 11 verse 19 says a part of that was this, that he believed. Why was he willing to follow through to this horrible, horrible thing, the destruction of his beloved son? We are told Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, because he believed that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. Okay. Bodily resurrection was on the mind of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his only beloved son. As we think, another just, we could multiply examples, but another quick one is very important, usually regarded as the most ancient book of the Bible, the book of Job again, seems to be the very first written account of the idea of resurrection. Job 19, verses 25-26, very famous verses. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. In my flesh, after my skin has been destroyed, in my flesh I will see God. Job 19.26 The concept of a resurrection is as old as the scriptures. And, and resurrection, to be very clear about this, is not just that there is an afterlife for your soul. But the scripture teaches the full restoration of your flesh, your body. And so we speak not just of the resurrection of Christ, but the bodily resurrection of Christ. This is crucial. Uh, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is the anchor of our hope. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a division, and this is a part of also the Jewish context, between those who believed in the resurrection and those who, who didn't. And we hear that throughout the Gospels, so we'll, we'll hear that little division that's going on. And, and while there are different groups, the two big groups that had this divide were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. 
And uh, this division is summarized in kind of a side note in Acts 23, verse 8, where we hear that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so this division is a part of the immediate setting of, of uh, chapter 11. We've got some who uh, deny all of this and some who affirm this, and that's going to play a role in the rest of the New Testament as well. So this saying uh, is in that biblical context of the resurrection of the body, your flesh being restored on that last day. And, uh, and more than really than any of the other sayings, again, we can understand it on its own, but I think more than all of the other sayings, it is buried inside this really large narrative, and the narrative frames it so beautifully. So what we're going to do to get the sense of it is to kind of walk through chapter 11. Again, if you've got your Bibles open, uh, keep them right there. We'll be kind of walking through it. And I want to hit some highlights for us. And the first thing we see in this, in this scene is that Jesus, from the very beginning, has a plan. Okay, Jesus has a plan. And it's revealed in the, in the way that, that Jesus understands what is happening, and Jesus takes a very deliberate course from the very beginning of the chapter. Uh, and a, the first part of that plan, when he knows that they want him to come and help Lazarus, is verse 6 tells us to wait two more days. This is the purposeful plan of Jesus, not to go quickly, but to wait, to wait. Well, then Jesus, a part of this plan, he tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep, and his disciples, he tells them, I'm going to wake him up. And it's always interesting, the disciples, they're, they, they're fairly clueless, and they're very clueless again. Well, if he's asleep, maybe he'll get some good rest, but he'll feel better. And Jesus, then finally, in verse 14, he speaks to them plainly, he says, Okay, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. This is, uh, I was using a, a, a metaphor. If you, if you can't understand the metaphor, I'll tell you plainly. Lazarus is dead. At every step of the story, you'll notice that others are, they're catching up. They're trying to figure out what's, what's, what's happening. But Jesus is never surprised by anything that is happening. Never. We'll notice in this chapter that Jesus is saddened, he is troubled, he is deeply moved. We'll talk about that. But Jesus is never surprised because he has a plan and he is affecting that plan very deliberately. Now that confuses us and we oftentimes doubt Jesus' plan because uh, the second thing to see in the chapter is that Jesus' plan is not like my plan. You'll notice another, a lot of other people in this chapter, they have a plan. They have the way that this should all work out. And they're trying, to, they're trying to guide Jesus into their plan. And that doesn't go very well. Mary and Martha, it starts off with, they had a plan. Here's the plan. Jesus, come to Bethany. Heal our brother. Now think about that. They believed that Jesus had the power. He had the willingness. He, you just need to come. We find the disciples have a plan. Their plan is, don't go back there. You were almost killed there. Why would we go back there? Why would we risk our lives again? I guess we're all going to die together then. And that's what, they, that's what they come up with here, right? Let us go that we may die with him. 
This is a foolish plan, Jesus. Even in Lazarus' death, their backup plan was that, uh, well, Lazarus would be restored on the last day, on that great day of the resurrection of the dead. Mary and Martha's plan, the disciples' plan, they were not Jesus' plan. And this is another thing that we just were hit with. A Jesus' plan is usually not like ours, not at all. You know, when we're struggling, when we're in pain, when we're watching others struggle, that's what we do, right? We develop plans, contingencies. We, we have ideas of how this could somehow all work out. And then we pray that God would get on board with my ideas about how this could all work out, right? That's what we do, right? And then when our plans fail, uh, we finally say, okay, Lord, uh, What's your plan? And that's where the point of struggle is because we wonder, does he really see? Does he really care? Jesus has a plan. Jesus' plan is not like your plan. The third thing we see that in the, just jumps out of the story, this narrative, is that Jesus, when we ask the question, does he see, does he care, that's the one question that's clearly answered in chapter 11. Because we see in this chapter that Jesus is deeply moved by our trials. Deeply moved. There's a word that's used only a few times in the Bible. It finds its way twice into this story. Verse uh, 33 and verse 38, Jesus is described as, the translation is, deeply moved. And it's just, it's another one of those Greek words where it's really hard to find an English equivalent. Uh, it's, the, it's the word in the Greek that's used for the snorting of horses. Think about that. There's, there's this, is this deep, indignation, outrage, anger. It's a really, really strong response. And this is Jesus' response to the situation twice. What is it that Jesus is so deeply moved about? What has brought about this strong reaction? And verse 33, well, the reaction comes when Jesus saw Mary weeping. And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. Jesus is moved by our trials. Now, a lot of commentators have uh, tried to say, well, what, now hold on now. What exactly is Jesus angry about? What is he upset about? What is he weeping about? And the two general answers that tend to come out are, are something like this. One, he is angry at the effects of sin in this world, which leads to death. And so he sees the results right in front of him of all the pain and anguish and suffering that come to us uh, from sin. The second answer, which makes sense to me as well, is he's, he's angry at the lack of faith of those who don't see that he is the answer to the suffering. And so there is some faith building that has to go on in this situation. And I wonder if it isn't perhaps a little bit of both. That he sees the ones he loved living in a world of pain and misery. And he sees those same ones without the sufficient faith to believe that he has the power to overcome this world of pain and misery. Whatever it is, Jesus has this strong emotional response that comes from observing the people he loves. 
D.A. Carson notes that we are to follow the example of Jesus in both empathy and outrage. He writes this, Grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment, while outrage without, without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance and irascibility. Irascibility, being quick-tempered and angry. What a strange notion that God is impacted emotionally by you and me. But it's, it's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is consistent about this. Think all the way back to Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And listen carefully. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Now, I don't know what that means for God's heart to be filled with pain, but the Bible says that is the outlook, that is the condition of your God when he looks at wickedness in the world. He sees your suffering. He sees your trials. He is moved. God's heart is filled with pain, Scripture says. Jesus wept. We have a God who sympathizes, we're told, with our our weaknesses, our infirmities, our temptations, because he is one of us. And notice, not was one of us, is one of us. He is forever one of us. When God took on human flesh, that was not a temporary condition. He rose again in the flesh. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will in the flesh come back again to claim his people and his kingdom. He didn't just become temporarily one of you. He became forever one of us. So what is Jesus going to do in the midst of our trials? And we see, again, Jesus moving into this text, bringing words of comfort. And that's what he's doing all along. He's bringing words of comfort. Jesus explains his plan to the disciples. Verse 9, I've been given so much time to the Father to accomplish my mission, and even what might seem at personal risk, I've got to do it. I've got to work while there's still daylight. Later, he begins to explain his plan for Lazarus, verses 14 and 15. He is going there to build their faith in order that they might believe. But even when Jesus gives explanations, they usually don't bring the comfort that we want. You ever think about that? I've been thinking about that this week. Explanations, how much do they help? Explanations aren't as good as promises. I want promises, not explanations. And that is what Jesus gives to Mary and Martha. And that brings us to the saying, Verses 24 and tw- 25 and 26. Today's I am are some of the most quoted verses in the Bible, and rightly so. And part of the reason is that promises are better than explanations. And Jesus makes this bold, one of the most beautiful and bold of all promises. I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Martha answers, yes, Lord, I, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Yeah, I, your words are true, Jesus. And yet Jesus is convinced that she doesn't really understand. 
she doesn't really know what it is that he is saying. Jesus asks us in moments like this, do you believe? God takes us to the point of testing routinely in our troubles. Do you believe this? It's easy to believe when life is going well. It's different to believe when you're standing at the tomb of a loved one who's been dead for four days and the rot has begun and he's going to smell if they roll away the stone. Do you believe? It's an important question for us to ask because I think sometimes People think that we, we, we say these kinds of words and we take these kinds of words to funerals because it will make us feel better. And I can only say they will only make you feel better if they are true. If not, then it's just some kind of a lie that we all jointly accept that will temporarily make us feel better. And that doesn't do much for me. It doesn't do a thing for me. Do you believe... Jesus' words when we're standing at the entrance of the tomb, four days dead. And notice that's something that's mentioned twice in the text. And this is a little known fact I hadn't, hadn't learned before, that in Jewish culture there was kind of a general idea that you know, if you're dead one day, two days, maybe even three days, who knows, maybe you've just swooned, maybe something happened, maybe you're, maybe you're going to somehow be, be roused. But, but also another convention of Jewish culture was by the fourth day, there's no doubt. This is a no-doubter. Not only are they dead, but they're decaying and it's going to smell. And so that's a part of what's happening in this chapter. Twice it's mentioned, no, he's not just dead. He's not just a little dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. This is flesh-rotting dead. And when you're standing at the tomb of rotting flesh, are you comforted by the words of Jesus? Notice, he says the words before he does what he's going to do. Do you believe him? Or what's the significance then? The big thing that is happening in chapter 11, I think, is this question that it begins with, and then it flows out of this, and the question is, why did Jesus wait? He could have gone earlier. He chose not to. He lined everything out this way according to his plan, and we get some fairly direct statements as to why he did that. Why did Jesus wait? And in our own lives, we begin to wrestle with those kinds of things. We, we wonder about God's timing. And that's why chapter 11 is really helpful to us, because it helps us to see the kind of questions we have in a different setting. What's Jesus up to? And when we see what Jesus is up to, it will begin to change us. God purposely puts us into seemingly impossible situations in order, Jesus says in chapter 11, to show us his power to build our faith, right? To shape our character and to teach us to trust him. That's what he's doing throughout the whole chapter. He could have done it a different way, but for all these reasons, he chose to do it this way. For the good of those present. And we're sometimes confused about 
what is good for us, but God is never, never confused and never distracted from what is best for us. And so he puts us purposely into situations like this that will show his power, that will build our faith, that will shape our character, that will teach us while we're still at the tomb to trust him. And so we try to believe that. Another one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible, we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so we, we've heard it and we memorize it and we, and we cling to it in times of trouble. But there's only one way we're going to really, really, really believe it, and that's this. When he takes us to this place and he says, now believe it. Jesus knows the Father's plan and now speaks out loud for the benefit of those gathered. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's working toward his plan in the midst of pain and death. He is speaking words for our ears that our faith might grow. And so what is our challenge under these circumstances? What is your challenge of belief? This is a story about Jesus calling friends in the midst of horrible grief to trust him to believe his word. <laughs> Do you hear that, friends? This is what Jesus does. He's calling you in the midst of grief to trust him and to believe his word. Do you? This is a story of all of Scripture. God speaks a word and creation responds. That's Genesis 1 and 2. God speaks and it is so. And this is what we see in the gospel accounts of Jesus. His very first miracle, what did his mother said, say? She said, do whatever he says. When he speaks, things happen. Jesus, in most of his miracles, many of his miracles, he speaks peace to the wind and the waves. He speaks healing to the broken. He speaks forgiveness to the lost. And then in a loud voice, he speaks the words of life to a man rotting in the grave. Verse 43, with a loud shout, we're told, he said, Lazarus, come out. And Jesus is able to bring life from death. That's what he does all the time since creation. And brothers and sisters, this is our greatest point of doubt and our greatest point of fear. Sometimes it isn't that I don't generally believe this, but I don't understand his plan and his timing. And it makes no sense. In fact, we're very much like Martha in this story. Uh, we believe and then we so easily doubt again. Verse 39, oh, Jesus, there will be a bad odor. It's too late. It's too late. Martha is just like us. Faith and doubt all mixed together. But I want you to remember this about Martha. This is the same Martha who wanted Jesus to come earlier, verse 3, because she knew he could do something. This is the same Martha who knew that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died, verse 21. This is the same Martha who said, even after his death, that God would give Jesus whatever he asked for, verse 22. This is the same Martha who affirmed the resurrection, verse 24. This is the same Martha who professed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. 
and then began to doubt. Doubt is normal. It's a part of our frailty and weakness. What do you do in your doubt, in your personal crisis? I want you to remember this, child of God. Jesus has a plan. And his plan is not like yours. And he sees you and he is deeply moved by your trials. And in the midst of your trouble, his words bring comfort. And always at the end, his words bring life. And in your trouble, you don't really want an explanation. You want a promise. And Jesus has given you the promise. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? That's the question today. Do you believe this? And when we believe this, we can joyfully anticipate the day when Jesus will, with a loud voice from his throne, shout every name written in the book of life. Shout your name. Come forth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wondrous promises of Scripture and the hope of resurrection through Christ and Christ alone. We pray you would fill our hearts with true hope and true belief and that we would be at rest and at peace in your promises. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.